Hello and welcome to our At Any Rate Emerging Markets Focus podcast, the place for us to discuss recent developments and key issues of focus in the emerging market fixed income asset class. I'm Johnny Goulden from the Emerging Markets Strategy team here at JP Morgan, and I'm joined by Saad Siddiqui, also from our Emerging Markets Strategy team. Saad, thanks for joining. Hi, good to be here. So markets have entered a somewhat calm phase in the last week after a lot of important data developments in the US and with the summer now upon us. Uh, Hopefully you are listening to this while sipping your favorite beverage and with the sea lapping firmly at your feet. We are not. So in today's podcast, we'll try and deal with the themes and questions that are coming up in EM markets in the wake of these recent developments. Johnny, let's start with the data flow over the past week. How has that challenged or reinforced some of our views and thoughts on markets? So I would say the recent and general thrust of data has been the the ongoing falling inflation with some softening inactivity indicators, uh, although with the US still seeing probably more growth resilience, even with some softening compared to, let's say, China and Europe, where the data has generally looked weaker. Um, And with inflation coming lower in EM and now in DM, this looks like a a more widespread phenomenon. And we have EM central banks who had hiked earlier, who have started selectively to to start cut, but in our economist forecasts are poised to, to ease more broadly now. Uh, as we're starting to go through the second half of the year. And generally, we should think of that as a positive cyclical point for EM local bonds. And and we do think of it that way. Um, While the growth data in the US has been a bit more resilient, it looked certainly a couple of weeks ago that the risk was starting to shift to this other scenario where the Fed would have to hike more than the markets are priced. Um, But with the labor market data and the inflation data, both which were uh, softer, that certainly has has raised the probability of a soft landing and and markets have been, uh, you know, positively reacting to that. Uh, We have obviously a Fed, which is is priced to hike coming up. And then we have a bit of a gap where we'll be uh, really waiting on the slow evolution of this data. And so that's left yeah, a better environment for EM fixed income. In the last week, we've actually uh, been sitting and hitting new highs for the year in both local and hard currency EM. Um, EM local markets are up nearly 11% now in dollar terms. Hard currency sovereigns just under 6% and corporates somewhere around 3.5%. Uh, we've adjusted, I think, uh, our recommendations to be um, you know, generally... Uh, you know, we've continued with a, a preference for local, but uh, sort of uh, not seeing as much downside uh, on the other parts as well. With these strong returns, what's happening to inflows to EM fixed income? The overall, to me, seems still subdued given the the relatively strong performance we've seen thus far. Yeah, so there has been a real lack of inflows, and I think that is surprising and somewhat a source of disappointment generally to the investor base. Um, So let's start with the headline numbers. EM fixed income funds have had about minus 2 billion 
of inflows year to date, i.e. 2 billion of outflows year to date. Um, now, when we split that up, local is perhaps the most surprising, really only a billion of inflows. If you just look, just to dissect a bit more at the part which excludes China only funds. So there was this pocket of China only funds. Um, if you take them out, just look at the broader GBIEM type funds, they've had about 3 billion of inflows uh, year to date. But even that, given double digit returns like this, usually induce significant inflow periods. And we really haven't seen it so far. And why is that? So we don't have sort of the complete smoking gun. We know exactly why this has happened. And so we find ourselves debating various different uh, explanations. One is maybe as simple as we have a combination for the global investor of cash at reasonable rates in the US and getting there elsewhere and an equity market, which has basically trended up the whole year. And so if you're just trying to keep it very simple, you can have some combination of risk-free cash and maybe equities and, you know, not have to deal with some of the complications of all the stuff in the middle. Uh, and, and that may have, have, you know, be somewhere in the reason why, why people haven't put money in. Uh, we have looked historically at the relationship between central bank balance sheet changes and flows to EM and the, the QT which is going on globally in that relationship should be telling us that we shouldn't be expecting it in, in flows. Um, but I find that a little bit unsatisfactory at the moment because financial conditions more broadly are easing and um, that you know, we have typically looked at the balance sheet. It's been a good proxy for those financial conditions. Right now, it isn't. Uh, so it doesn't exactly all tally. Um, and, you know, people are do ask the question that the pickup to develop markets is actually quite low at the moment in emerging markets. So if you were bullish on, on duration, why would you go to EM uh, necessarily? Um, but you know, none of those is a great explanation. I would say I still find it somewhat surprising that we have not had uh, bigger inflows into local markets. Um, actually, for hard currency, it's even worse. Last week saw the 22nd consecutive week of outflows from Ian hard currency funds. And this is an asset class which is up nearly 6% this year. So the last time we had a streak of outflows this bad was in 2008. And as you will remember, 2008 was not a great time. So, you know, it, that one deserves a bit of explanation. I would say our explanations for that are probably slightly weaker even than, than in local. I think maybe there's a bit of rotation going on between hard and local, although again, you're not seeing the corresponding inflows into local. So it's difficult to, to see that except maybe within fund now basis I, I you know we what we hear is that that the default cycle in em hard currency is somewhat off putting for new money uh, so you're looking at an asset class where really the the risk premium is quite low outside those def default distress candidates and uh, then you're trying to attract 
you know money that the really the the value premise is about getting involved in those names and that may not be as easy for for new money but uh nevertheless again i think it's quite surprising uh to think about that i would say probably expectation is that both of those will get better and that the returns will induce uh inflows to follow uh in both of those bits but uh that's that's to be seen um and maybe start to turn then to you and and you know, continue on some of these uh, questions about positioning and uh, how that ties in with the global environment. So, you know, I talked in the beginning about how the global duration environment looks quite supportive. Question is on the rates side of things in emerging markets, do you think that we are at a point which is crowded and sufficiently crowded in terms of over positioning? Um, to want to more seriously start reducing uh, those positions. So in our own recommendations, we have been very gradually reducing our long positions in rates, taking some profits on tactical trades and overall expressing a view that if you are long duration and we were in our own recommendations max long um, some weeks ago, we have been on that path of reducing that exposure. It's not about positioning. As you just mentioned, Johnny, we haven't seen that many inflows coming into local markets. So in terms of the grand scheme of things, we don't have very crowded positioning. The foreign ownership of local bond markets is still relatively low. But it is true that on a relative basis, at least, I do think rates, uh, long positions is where the general consensus is of investors and where the relative preferences are. So the real reason to be reducing duration positions here, still being long, but reducing at the margin, is about valuations. Now, at the short end of yield curves, very few people, including our economists and strategists, believe that we're going to see central banks exceed what's already priced in. So we're pricing in pretty aggressive cutting cycles, and with there still being a bit of uncertainty about where the Fed is going to go. Uh, it's not clear that you're going to beat the forwards meaningfully um, for the most part. And then at the belly of, the, of yield curves, as you mentioned before, you know the spread between EM yields and US yields isn't as high as it was. It's actually looking low on an aggregate basis. And we've already priced quite a bit of normalization taking hold. Now, the reason to still hold long positions is that there is clearly momentum in this trade even though we wouldn't want to get into fresh new positions now to receive, but I think that momentum can last a little bit longer. But the prudent strategy here would be that as that momentum grows, goes, you take profit into that momentum because what you want to do is avoid the last stage of a bull market where it becomes a little bit past the parcel. Nobody really wants to be owning those uh, bonds at those yields, but it's it, it just... Um, uh, relies purely on momentum rather than fundamentals. We're not there yet, but over the next few months, as the cutting cycles commence, I think that would probably uh, be one in which we continue to, you know, slowly and gradually reduce that long duration recommendation we've had in our in our portfolio. Great. So you mentioned that the cutting cycles, and maybe the other part of that is to think about what that does to the EM currencies, and obviously. We've talked about quite a bit previously 
that the carry trade uh, in EMFX is something that we have, have been uh, in, in in Latin America, for example. So we're about to start a period where if things go according to the forecast, Latin American central banks are going to start broadening their cutting cycle in terms of the number of countries. Um, how worried should we be about the carry trade getting eroded as that happens and maybe what lessons do we have from history or even from Hungary which is you know a several months earlier in terms of a high yielder which is starting to to cut sure so um it's true we do think that we are going to start seeing cutting cycles commence in the very near future countries like Chile and Brazil are going to lead the way in Latin America to begin with and then over time, uh, the other central banks uh, later in the year are going to join in based on our economist's forecast. But first, before I get into what this means for the carry trade, I think we should um, make kind of a point in epistemology of how we learn our lessons of, uh, and, and how we kind of forecast the, the prognosis for this carry trade. I think taking lessons from history can often be quite misleading um, because it's you know sometimes very regime dependent. It's dependent on the cycle of the dollar, and also the countries themselves have gone through uh, very uh, big structural changes over the past twenty to thirty years. So the Mexico of twenty-five years ago is not the Mexico of today. So we don't have, I think, a lot of good rules of thumb for this. Um, you know the the carry trade. In general, has basically only had two two big regimes: the last ten years, which was really poor, and the prior twenty years, which were really good for the carry trade. So uh, it's hard to say at what point this carry trade that's been performing so well is going to begin to fizzle out. But we can say things based on kind of a bottom-up analysis, looking at first principles. Uh, so the first thing is that the carry is going to erode most likely very gradually. There's a few exceptions to that. Uh, places like Chile, for example, where we are, you know, we don't like the currency at the moment uh, is one where, um, you know, you could see that carry eroding much more quickly. But in places like in Brazil and in Mexico, where we are uh, more bullish on the currencies, uh, those are places where the carry trade is only going to erode really very slowly. The second thing is that central banks are very attuned to this. They're very attuned to getting signals from the markets. And I think there's very little desire from these central banks that having done a lot of hard work bringing inflation under control to cut prematurely and to trigger a currency sell-off that has an inflationary consequences. And then uh, you know, they would um, lose credibility off the back of that. Uh, so I think um, you know, there's still legs to go uh, as far as the carry trade in Latin America is concerned. There's also this point about the dollar. Now, the, if you think about the dollar cycle, which I think is going to ultimately be the, the most important determinant of how far we can continue to get returns from, uh, from high yielding currencies, the dollar has just come off in the last decade, you know, a very strong run, and is giving back some of the gains that it's made uh, in recent years. And if you think about it where it is in long-term valuations, EM currencies don't seem to be hitting against any real valuation uh, constraints except a few exceptions. Um, so overall, I think there is um, still good 
grounds to be long these high yielding carry currencies, the carry is going to stay high. Um, and once you're begin to get through the cutting cycle, you have to chop a lot of wood before you get to levels where you think that either in real or nominal terms that the carry is becoming insufficient to compensate for, uh, for macro risks. Okay, so let's stick with currencies and maybe deal with the other big thing which is probably going on in EM, uh, and that is uh, CNY uh, weakness. Um, so obviously the data in China has been um, below expectations. We've had more cuts of uh, uh, forecasts for growth this year following uh, the Q2 data this week, um, and a lot of focus in, in markets about potential policy responses. Uh, but also there is a very low inflation and, um, you know, the idea that, that CNY weakness is sort of part of a policy framework, which is going to help uh, deal with that. So CNY weakness has been happening. And I guess it begs the question, why are EM currencies, which historically have been quite well related and reactive to this, ignoring it? That's a great question. And it and it links back to my point about how do we take lessons from history when it comes to sensitivity of EM currencies to different factors. Because one, when they first began uh, their high correlation with CNY, it was basically from 2015, 16 onwards. At that time, that was an anomaly. And uh, we were writing about it, I remember at the time, and trying to explain why is it that all of a sudden EM currencies are highly correlated to, to CNY. It was never really the case before prior to that. Um, and in some sense, now we're mean reverting back to where we used to be. So what is uh, the right normal? Is it a new normal or is there something else going on? Um, was it just too high before um, for various reasons? Uh, in part because you know China has a closed capital account. Uh, people look at CNY as a proxy for what's happening to growth and global growth. Um, and that's what was driving uh, the kind of EM currencies hypersensitivity to CNY. I think you can look at it through two lens. One is through the lens of factor analysis. In the last you know, decade or so, we only really had the growth factor for emerging market currencies. The carry factor didn't exist because carry was both low and not dispersed. It was converged at low levels. And that made EM currencies very sensitive to growth in China. But now that we do have carry, just growth matters less. Um, and that would suggest that while carry remains high and dispersed, both of those are important conditions, uh, it makes sense for us not to be as sensitive to China as we were in the past. There is another explanation, which I think is an important one. And that is the correlation between China's imports of raw materials and China's business cycle, its infrastructure spending, investment spending, has also now become desynchronized. Because if you look at bilateral trade balances between, say, the Latin American countries and China, or even, say, South Africa, uh, the commodity producers, those bilateral trade balances are actually close to record highs on a 12-month rolling basis. So as far as commodity producers are concerned, they haven't felt any slowdown in China because their exports of raw materials and commodities to China are very high. And that's in part related to the fact that Chinese imports of commodities now 
seem to be uh, driven by, I guess, precautionary stockpiling of raw materials. And it's less driven by just the old, uh, the traditional uh, kind of infrastructure spending that would spur demand for copper. You know, demand for copper in volume terms has been really very strong. So our commodities team have written about this, that there is a, a pretty strong stockpiling uh, trend ongoing. Uh, and that really shields emerging market commodity exporters from the the gyrations of China's business cycle. I think both of these are two important factors, uh, which means that the sensitivity or the low sensitivity to CNY is not a bug, it's a feature. And it will change, I think, either when and if carry falls meaningfully and or China's commodity imports go back to their old trend of being correlated to the business cycle rather than being driven by precautionary uh, demand uh, to build inventories of those raw materials. Now, turning to the credit side, Johnny, how much scope do you think there is for non-distress spreads to tighten here? And also on the distress side of things, that's been the better performing bit of the credit asset class in the last um, uh, few months. Yeah, we are splitting up, we find a lot in our analysis, this idea of distressed versus non-distressed EM sovereign. So by distressed, let's just take the triple C bucket um, in terms of that. And I'll explain why. This year has really been, again, about distressed performance, whereas last year was actually about distressed underperformance. And this has really happened in the last two months. So just to give an indication, um, Year to date, spreads on the triple C part of the EM sovereign universe are just over 500 basis points tighter. Spreads on the X triple C part are eight basis points tighter. So close to, to little changed. Returns wise, that means you have made in triple C 29% return year to date. X triple C, you've made four and a half. So Really, you know, we need to to think about those two parts quite differently. We've generally liked taking our opportunities more in the distressed or or quasi distressed part of the market. Um, clearly, you know, with that kind of performance, you always feel that that not quite enough. Um, and I think we see less opportunity in the other part of the market. You know, if you look at our MB index X triple C spreads are already. 57 basis points below their long-term average. They're already, you know, 20, 30 basis points below the mid-cycle average of the last cycle. So I, I still think that, that probably, and, and the team here thinks there's not so much opportunity in that bit. Uh, so really to keep looking in, in the distressed and quasi-distressed bit of the market. And there have been some positive developments there. Zambia has had some progress with the official sector on its debt restructuring progress. Pakistan has seen uh, a stronger IMF uh, outturn. Uh, Ukraine, there's been GDP data, which actually surprised better. And, and there was some thought in the market about turning to, to eventual restructuring. Uh, Sri Lanka has also had some uh, progress on its debt restructuring process uh, for locals. Um, so, you know, there has been a continued rally in that bit after the softer US CPI. I know that that's drawn some questions about, you know, what really has that got to do with EM sovereign distress? And obviously, it doesn't directly 
uh, impact that that uh, you know restructuring in Zambia, for example. But it does have an impact. And if you think about the counterfactual, the market was heading to a world where we were potentially thinking two to four more Fed hikes. And what that would do to financing conditions and the ability of countries to access financial markets, uh, compared to an environment now where you get, you know, as the market is pricing one more Fed hike and, and done, that could allow markets to be more open. And if that happens, there are a, a range of countries that may be able to, to just get along without hitting the wall. Um, more than than perhaps had been thought before. So, uh, you know, it's not a direct, obviously, impact on 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 that. But I think the overall environment there does does make an make a difference. Um, so, thus, what else is there? We've talked a lot of, of top down as well. But what else is there going on um, for those listening from the beach that they should know about in terms of uh, country specific developments at the moment? Well, I'd say that if you're sitting on the beach, you know, JP Morgan does have an official summer recommended reading list. You're probably better off reading that about, you know, art, culture, history, and so on. Uh, but if you must, um, I'll just highlight three things. Uh, first of all, on idiosyncratic front, uh, we've seen quite a lot of announcements coming out off the back of the Turkish president's visit to the Gulf countries, both from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The numbers that we're talking about in terms of um, investments from that region into Turkey are far beyond what many people had thought. The numbers are uh, spread between both uh, your kind of traditional, more liquidity types of uh, sources of support, uh, in addition to investments, FDI, export um, agreements, and so on. So it's really very large, and um, it's worth taking notice, I think. Uh, of of the size of that, um, so that's something to to keep an eye out on. Um, then on China, there's widespread expectation that off the back of relatively kind of weak growth numbers more recently, that are we going to see another round of announcements to try to stimulate things? Have we got have things gotten as bad as they can for now? So as you come back from the beach. Uh, later in August, September, uh, that's going to be something to to watch out for. And on the political front, um, Argentina is growing uh, focus and attention on that. We have the primaries coming up, so that's something again to keep an eye out uh, for. And you know, could we see another round of kind of enthusiasm and optimism uh, on kind of a potential economic reform there? Great. Thanks, Saad. And that brings us to the end of this JP Morgan at any rate Emerging Market Focus podcast. Thanks, Saad, for joining today. And thank you all for listening from wherever you are. And we hope to have you back again with us for the next one. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on the 20th of July, 2023.